right. Open your Bibles up to Psalm 93. Psalm 93. And the title of this psalm is The Lord Reigns. The Lord Reigns. This psalm is categorized as a royal psalm. And it focuses on the sovereign reign of God over the earth. It's only five verses. Now you would think, because it, it covers the sovereignty of God, that it would be a much longer psalm. Because that's a, a, a grand topic in itself. But again, it's just five short verses, but again, filled with, as always, um, great uh, teaching to us. Jewish tradition claims the next seven psalms, 93 through 99, look forward to some of the works of the Messiah. And Psalm 93 is said to have been used in the temple service after their captivity. And it may have been written during Sennacherib's, King Sennacherib's invasion in 2 Kings 18.13 through chapter 19.37. What it's all about is, is God is king of the universe. King of the universe. The creator of heavens and earth and all that's in them. What are we, mere human beings, compared to him? God is king of heaven. What are the gods compared to him? The so-called gods that many people claim are just as legitimate as the true and living God. And they're not. They're not. There's but one true and living God, and that's Jehovah God. God is king of all. Now, who can he be compared to? Even God says himself in Isaiah 40, 25, To whom then will you liken me, or whom shall be, I be equal to? Says the Holy One. Satan is not his equal. Satan is not even close to being his equal. He's powerful, but he's not his equal. So, again, this emphasis is one of the most inspiring ideas in the Bible. The sovereign king of all. The arrangement of Psalm 93 is as follows. First, the establishment of the reign of God as king of creation in verses 1 and 2. Second, the celebration of the stability of God as king of creation in verses 3 through 4. And third, the acknowledgement of the excellent nature of God in verse 5. The theme, God's unchanging and omnipotent nature. His creation is a reminder of his great power. The author is anonymous. We don't know who wrote this particular psalm. So let's begin in Psalm 93 with verse 1. And we read, The Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed. He has girded himself with strength. Surely the world is established so that it cannot be moved. Let's go to verse 2. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. So it begins with the words, the Lord reigns. This is the key of the royal Psalms. The Lord, it says, girded himself with strength. This describes, when it says girded himself with strength, or is clothed with strength, this, this, this describes the victor of one-on-one -on -one combat. And God is dressed, it says here, in the garments of victory. You see, this is a celebration of God as the creator. And it says here, notice, God cannot be moved. This means there's no power on earth or in the universe that can take the control of earth away from God. The rule of God is from everlasting, it says here. The living God is eternal. And verses 1 through 2 speak of the nature of God's reign. 
And it introduces four characteristics of God's kingly rule, which are at the same time, they're also four important attributes of God. The first one we see, it says the Lord reigns in verse 1, He is clothed with majesty. We see the majesty of God here. One of the many characters of God's kingdom and of God Himself is majesty. It's kind of hard to explain just what majesty is. But it has to do with dignity. That means his excellence, his sovereign power and glory and greatness. It's the fitting characteristic of earthly rulers who often uh, go to a lot of trouble to build up their impression that they have majesty by multiplying the symbols of power, just outward signs. You know, they want to you know, show their majesty. They, they do all kinds of things and build themselves up to have the appearance of majesty. But it's the highest attribute of the one who is the true ruler over all, the Lord God. And he doesn't need to add anything to add to his power. He's all power. He's omnipotent. That means all powerful. Majesty is the main attribute seen in the visions of God in his glory in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it stirs up awe. It stirs up awe in simple human beings. And it often leaves them speechless. Or like dead. For Isaiah, for example, in chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, we read that Isaiah saw God's majesty when he had his vision here in Isaiah, in chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, in his prophecy. Listen to what we read there. Isaiah 6, 1 through 4. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face. And with two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. Isaiah saw his majesty. And Isaiah was so overcome by, by, by a, a sense of God's majesty, that he cried out in Isaiah 6, 5, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of, a people of unclean lips, for my eyes, notice, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Majesty is an attribute or a quality that connects God's holiness and God's sovereignty. We read that he's here in verses 1 through 2 that he's clothed. Notice he's clothed there in verse 1 with majesty. This speaks of an act, not just a detail. When men and nations looked at God's plan and they thought God's plan was getting weaker and weaker and they were losing hope and, and, and they were headed for defeat because the people were exiled, the Lord asserted his power to bring a remnant back to their promised land again. The moral condition of the world that seemed to be on the verge, the verge of falling, it's reestablished. The psalmist here worships him in awe and adoration because you see, God firmly established the world. It can't be shaken because you see the Lord reigns. It's in control. And you know, we look around and we see things happening in the world. We see the, some of the terrible things that are going on and we think, man, God, you lost control. Uh-uh. Everything is going according to his plan. This world cannot be shaken. God has it well in hand. Whatever opposition might come, 
His throne cannot be moved. God cannot or ever will be dethroned. Because God reigns. And He has reigned. And He will always reign. No matter what's going on in this world, no matter the turmoil, no matter what the rebellion is on earth, the King Eternal, the Almighty God, sits in heaven in total calmness. He's not shaking in His boots, so to speak, up there. Oh man, look what's going on down there. How do I take care of it? He just shakes his head and says, those poor little people, they're just, they're just following my plan and they don't even know it. The King Eternal, like I said, sits in heaven in total calmness and complete control. And everywhere, he is truly master. So you know what? Let his enemies rage all that they want because all they're doing is fulfilling his plan. All things are ordered according to his eternal purposes. And you know what? His will is done and it's being done and it's going to be done. So in this verse, it seems as if the Lord had left the throne for a while. Because again, when you look at verse 1, it says the Lord reigns. All right? The Lord reigns. But all of a sudden, he puts on his royal robe and he makes his way up to his throne while his people are happy and they shout with a renewed joy here, the Lord reigns. What can make a faithful subject happier than seeing the king in his beauty? Knowing that God reigns, that the Lord reigns. And telling it to those who have no hope. We have such a wonderful hope and that's why we need to tell people the Lord reigns. Telling them boldly, telling it in the face of the enemy. You're not in control. You may think you're in control, but you're not. Secondly, the next characteristic we see here of God's kingdom is his strength. The psalmist was so impressed with, the, with, with majesty as a characteristic of God's kingdom, he said it twice. Notice in, in verse, uh, the first time he says in verse 1, the Lord reigns, he is clothed with majesty. And then secondly, the Lord is clothed with majesty. But then he goes on to say more about the majesty of God. It says, and he's girded himself with strength. He's girded himself with strength at the end of verse 1. This means... That the majesty of God is also a majesty of power. It's not just a show of sovereignty. Like like is often the case with human rulers. It is real sovereignty. And we'll see more about that sovereignty in verses 3 through 4. But again, sovereignty means that that God being sovereign means that there is no outside people or committees or anybody that, that influences him. Whatever he does, whatever, does, whatever he, he, he's doing, he, he doesn't you know, meet with some angelic host, some angelic committee, no earthly committee. He, he doesn't get any outside influence in whatever he does. He's sovereign. He's God. And he does it all on his own. In other words, when he says, like he does at the beginning of this psalm, verse 1, the Lord reigns, he means exactly that. I reign, God says. Not me and some guys, not me and some angels, not me and some committee. I reign. I rule, God says. There is no outside influence that that helps me to do what I do. The Lord reigns, and that's exactly what it says. He really reigns. Not just seems to reign. He's truly sovereign. Third thing that we see is another characteristic of God's rule, which is also an attribute, which is, you know, uh, immunity. immutability that is unchanging immutability he's unchangeable and this is what the psalmist means there in verses one through two when he says he's established notice it says at the end of verse one also he is established 
In verse 1, we read that surely the world is established. The world can't be moved. So it doesn't matter what's going on in this world, as I said. It doesn't matter what's going on around it. It doesn't matter what's going on across the seas. Nothing is able to move it. Nothing is able to destroy God's creation, but God Himself. Hebrews 12, 28 says, We are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken. And you know what? God is looking for people who can't be shaken. Verse 1 says, The world is established. In other words, it can't be moved. No matter what it may look like, nothing is able to move or even less destroy God's creation but God Himself. The only reason why the world is established is because God Himself is established or unchangeable. And this is what verse 2 is all about. It says here, Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. That means He's eternal. Psalm 2, 1 through 4 says this, No matter if the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing, or the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Because He who sits in the heavens shall laugh, the Lord shall hold them in derision. You see, it doesn't matter if all the kings on this earth and all the people who are against God, if they were to get together and have some kind of counsel or meeting and try to come against the Lord, it says here in Psalms 2, 1 through 4, that God just sits and laughs at them. The Lord holds them in derision because God is on the throne and there's nobody that's going to ever dethrone Him. You see, the immutability of God, the unchangeable God, is what separates God from even the highest of His creatures. God is unchangeable. And thank God. Thank God He doesn't change His mind about me every time I mess up or, you know, or, or, or He's, you know, if people think He's in a mood or something. My God loves me regardless of what I do. He may be you know, hurt and, upset and disappointed, but He loves me just the same. You see, God is unchangeable. No other part of creation is unchangeable. If we think of this universe, we see it's always changing. Not just the seasons of the year. And then everything goes back the way it was. The universe changes in the sense that it's constantly decaying or running down. The decaying is slowly taking place. And it's been going on ever since the fall of man. And it's been going on slowly over the centuries so that you can barely even notice it. But it's all the same. It's running down. The sun is cooling off and it will eventually die out. All of the different and plentiful resources of the earth, they'll run out. We see it now. Some of the species of animals have already become extinct and more on the verge of becoming extinct. Each of us matures, we grow old, and we die. The day we're born, we start decaying, heading towards death. Human nature is not immutable. It's not unchangeable. It's just the opposite. It's restless. It's fickle. It's always changing. Jesus made the point very clear when he said this in Matthew eleven, eleven through 19. He says, to what shall I liken this generation? He says, it's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their companions and saying, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned for you. We mourned to you and you did not lament. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. 
the son of man came eating and drinking. They say, look, a glutton and a wide a friend of uh, tax collectors and sinners. You see, one minute the people were crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, when he entered Jerusalem. Next thing you know, they're crying out, crucify him, crucify him. People are fickle. And they're up one minute and down the next. They're thinking this one minute and thinking that the next. Thank God our God is not changing. It doesn't change. Thank God he's immutable, again, unchangeable. Hebrews 13, 8 through 9, we say, Thank God Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's somebody that we can depend upon. And the characteristics of his kingdom, they're unchangeable too. He rules as well and as powerfully today as he ever did, and he will rule that way forever. Then the fourth characteristic we see in verses 1 through 2, the last uh, attribute that's mentioned is God's eternity. God's eternity. Notice again verse 2, your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. This speaks of of uh, of being eternal. You are from everlasting, meaning that God is, he always has been, and he always will be. And that he's everywhere the same in his eternal being. In Revelation 1.8, 21.6, he's called the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Which means, first of all, God can be trusted to always be faithful as he reveals himself to be. He will be the same at the end of our life just as he was at the beginning. He will never change his character. He'll never change his word. God's word has been the same ever since he first spoke it. It'll be the same to the last day of it. Thank God. That's that's something that we can depend upon. Man's word, it's always changing. God makes a promise. He keeps it. He keeps it. Secondly, we see that God is inescapable. You, You can't escape God. You can't hide from God. You can't go anywhere where he's not. We might try to ignore him. We might give him uh, and give an account to, to, you know, try to, to not, you know, give an account to him. But again, uh, you, you can't you can't get away from him. Uh, again, we try to ignore him, but uh, but a lot of people uh, try to do it but without success. Ignoring him won't work because he, he knows where you are. He knows what you're doing. Pretending he doesn't work or, or does, he doesn't exist. That won't work. One day, we are all going to have to stand before him. And we're going to have to give an account. And he already knows, before we even open our mouths, what we've done, where we've been. Our hearts are open to him. And all of our, do- our desires, they are known to him already. Listen to Psalm 139, verses 1 through 7. The psalmist said, O Lord, you have examined my heart and you know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up. You know my thoughts even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You know what I am going to say even before I say it. Lord, it says, you go before me and you follow me. You place your hand of blessing on my head. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too great for me to understand. I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. Jeremiah 23, verses 23 through 24 says this. God says, am I a God near at hand, says the Lord, and not a God afar off? Can anyone hide himself in secret places so I shall not see him, says the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, says the Lord? God fills the earth. 
There is nowhere you can go where he's not. Listen to Amos 9, 1 through 4. He says, I saw the Lord standing by the altar and he said, strike the doorposts that the thresholds may shake and break them on the heads of them all. I will slay the last of them with a sword. He who flees from them shall not get away and he who escapes from them shall not be delivered. Though they dig into hell, from there my hand shall take them. Though they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. And though they hide themselves on top of Mount Carmel, from there I will search and take them. Though they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, from there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. Though they go into captivity before their enemies, from there I will command the sword and it shall slay them. I will set my eyes on them from harm and not for good. No matter where. Go down to hell, he's there. You go to heaven, he's there. The deepest parts of the seas, he's there. The edge of the earth, he's there. So the next time your problems seem bigger than you, read this psalm. Read this psalm. Psalm 139 or Jeremiah 23, 23 and 24, and Amos 9, 1 through 4. Let's look at verses 3 through 4 now. The Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters. I'm sorry, verse 3. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their waves. The Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters than the mighty waves of the sea. Verses 3 and 4 speaks of the turmoil of the world God rules over. This, you know, this world is in great turmoil today. And this time, Baal was supposed to have been victorious over the waters. So this section here of Scripture, this section of the psalm is a continuing uh, refutation of Baal worship while it joyfully celebrates the power of God. It says that the Lord on high is mightier. You see, the Creator King is infinite in His power. And there is no force in the universe that compares with Him or can compete with Him. He's omnipotent. That means all-powerful. In the Old Testament, the ocean with its restless, that is, its roaring waves, is often a symbol of the wavering world of the surrounding Gentile nations, that is, those who weren't Jews. For example, Isaiah 17, 12 says this, Woe to the multitude of many people who make a noise like the roar of the seas. Jeremiah 6, 23 and Jeremiah 50, 42, As they ride forward, the noise of their army is like a roaring sea. One commentator writes this. He said, The sea with its mighty mass of waters, with the constant unrest of its waves, with its ceaseless pressing against the solid land and the foaming against the rocks, is an emblem of the Gentile world alienated from at at enmity or hostility with God. Another commentator writes, If the floods are translated into historical reference, they could refer to the roaring of hostile nations against Yahweh and Israel. The psalmist views their threat as more noise than power. So if the seas represent the Gentile nations, then verses 3 and 4 here is a declaration of God's sovereignty over every historical event. Jehovah God is not just the king of the universe which was mentioned earlier, but he's also the king over human beings as well. Though they don't want to be ruled over him, though they wouldn't admit it, God is rule over mankind. Look at verse 5 now. Your testimonies are very sure. Holiness adorns your house, O Lord, forever. So while this psalm uses language that resembles the worship of Baal, To emphasize the greatness of God, particularly Psalm 29, 
It also glorifies God with praises never attributed to Baal, one of the gods of the Canaanites. None of the praises of Baal speak of his testimonies. But God is superior to Baal. And because he is faithful to his word, he is the gracious God who speaks to his people. He is the eternal God that we worship, like the people did in ancient Israel. So here we have a couple more attributes of God as king. God's kingly rule. This is a kingdom of law. It's a kingdom of holiness and justice. God is a just God. He's a fair God. He's a righteous God. God's kingdom is a rule of law, which is what the important word testimonies refers to here. You see, God's testimonies are his decrees, his orders, his commands above all of his laws. Listen to Psalm 119.2. The psalmist says, blessed are those who keep his testimonies. It's another, it's another word that for, for his word, for his statutes, his judgments, for his commands. Blessed or happy are those who keep his word. It says, who seek him with the whole heart. And that's what, that's what God is looking for. He's looking for those who will seek him with their whole heart. Everything about God. To seek him with a whole heart. This means that God rules his people by his word. God rules over the world and he rules over history. That's, that's, that's a sovereign rule. That's a sovereign, independent of and somewhat removed from us or what we do. And by reminding us that the testimonies of God are very sure. They are established. The testimonies of God are very sure, like the world and even the throne of God itself. It is established. And so the psalmist is saying here that those of us who profess to know God, who say, I'm a Christian, who say, I I, I know God, I believe in God. And they confess him as our God. They have to know and they have to obey his testimonies. This is important to understand. You can't claim to to say that you're a Christian and belong to God. And I'm a believer if you don't obey his word. If we aren't actually ruled by him, we can't claim to be his people. Because we're governed by his word. That's why he left us the scriptures. For example, Jesus rules his church. How? By guiding its destiny sovereignly. Sovereignly. Jesus didn't need some committee, as I said earlier, or some outside advice to guide his church. He didn't gather the disciples together and say, hey guys, what do you think? How do you think I should run my church? He doesn't do that. He doesn't need to do that. Again, he's God. But the way he specifically rules his people in his church is by the teaching of the word of God. That's the purpose of the Bible. Not to be some a religious relic or some neat thing I set at the coffee table for people to see when they come over. It should be torn and marked and highlighted and bent and everything else. Because we use it, we read it. Again, it's not to be a decoration in our, in our living room. It's the word of God. And it's in the Word of God where we learn about God, where He reveals Himself to me, and where I learn what God wants of me, and what He expects of me, what He wants me to do, and what He wants us to be. And again, we can't say that we are a follower of Jesus Christ or ruled by by Jesus unless we know who He is. 
and unless we know what He's told us in the Bible and that we're actually doing it. Obeying His every word. Listen to what Jesus said in Luke 6.46 in this passage. He says to His disciples, He says, But why do you call Me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? That's a convicting Scripture. He said to him, hey, you call me Lord, you call me God, and yet you don't do what I tell you. He said, whoever comes to me and hears my sayings, that is his word. Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, notice, and does them. He says, I will show you whom he is like. Jesus said, he's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose and the stream beat vehemently against that house and, and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But then he goes on to talk about the other person who heard and did nothing. The person who heard his word and did nothing. He says, he's like a man who built the house on the earth without a foundation against which the stream beat vehemently and immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great. Jesus is talking about two types of people here. They both claim to believe the Bible. They both claim to believe the Word of God. The one person builds their life upon the Word of God. The other one doesn't. He doesn't truly believe it. And he said the one that does believe in the Word of God and builds his life on that foundation, he says when that storm came and beat against his house, that storm represents the storms of life. When you go through those storms of life, whatever they might be, uh, some problem, some affliction, some sickness, something you know in your life. And if you haven't built your life upon the Word of God, the promises of God, and those storms come, You're not going to remain standing. He said that other person who claimed to to, to hear the word of God, but he didn't do anything with it. He didn't build his life upon the word of God. It says when he experienced the storms of life, his house fell. And great was its fall. You see, this illustration by Jesus is to show the results about hearing what Jesus says and doing what he says. Oh, a lot of people hear Jesus week after week, sit in church, and they hear about Jesus. And then they go out and live like they hadn't heard. As if it meant nothing. They hear, but they don't do what they're taught. Hearing is not enough. You must do what you hear. This illustration is related to the previous verse about calling Jesus nice names, but not doing what he says. Oh, yeah, I'm a believer and yeah, and I have faith in God and and yet I don't live it. I don't act it. James chapter one, verse 25, James says this, but he who looks into the perfect law of liberty, which is God's word, notice and continues in it. And is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. This one will be blessed in what he does. Notice the emphasis. It wasn't on what he heard, it's what on what he did. He said, he who looks into the perfect law of liberty, which is the word of God, and continues in it. And is not a forgetful hearer, because some people hear the word of God, and the minute they walk out the door, they, hey, what was the message about? I don't know about Jesus. 
but they don't know what was said about Jesus. James says they're forgetful hearers. He said, ah, oh, but a doer of the work. He says, this is the one that will be blessed in what he does. You notice the blessing comes in doing, not in hearing. Psalm 19, 7 through 11. The psalmist said, the law of the Lord is perfect. The law is the word. He said, it's perfect. Converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is pure. Testimony is another word for the, for, for the, for the, for the word of God. Making wise the simple, the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold. Notice, the psalmist said that the word of God is to be more desired than gold. Yes, he says, much fine gold and sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. And he says, moreover, by them... He's speaking about God's word by them. By God's word, your servant is warned. And in keeping them, there is great reward. The psalmist says, by, by, by keeping the word of God, there's great reward. But also by hearing the word of God and keeping the word, your servant is warned against those things in life that can hurt you because you don't listen to the word of God. God's kingdom is a rule of justice. It's according to holiness. That is justice, righteousness, because it says in James 1.25, again, the law of God is perfect. And we read that here in Psalm 19. God's word is perfect. It's infallible. There are no mistakes. There are no contradictions. And again, that's the purpose of our conference, to, 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 to learn exactly that. Which is, the last, which is what the last sentence declares here. Notice in verse 5. Your testimonies, that is your word, are very sure. Holiness adorns your house, O Lord, forever. Holiness adorns your house. Holiness adorns. The word adorns means beautiful. In other words, holiness makes your house beautiful. Your house is this this kingdom. Holiness beautifies the kingdom of God. One of the biggest problems today is unholiness in the house of God. How many times have you heard, oh yeah, I'm not a Christian because I've seen so many hypocrites. Oh, I know this Christian who, who says he's a Christian, he goes to church, and, and, and he, he does the same things as everybody else does. You see, holiness beautifies God's house. Everything related to God is holy. Therefore, it makes sense that we should be holy. If we're not holy, if God's people aren't holy, how can we beautify the house of God? Nobody's going to want to come into God's house if we're, we're living like hell. Why would they want to come in? I'm not showing them anything different than they already have. I can live like you. I'm living like you are. We can't. We can't live unholy lives. Many don't live the holy life. They do the very opposite. They blemish it. And then we dishonor it. And then God, and, and, and we dishonor the God that we say that we serve. Serving God isn't just you know, coming to his house and you know, maybe doing some work around the church. Serving God means serving him with my life. I'm a servant of the most high God. And my life, my life reflects that in the way that I live. 
You see, if we strive to live holy lives like we should, then we honor God and we prove that He is truly ruling my life. Peter said in 1 Peter 2, 9-10, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you, knows, called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. But a lot of believers still live in darkness. They haven't come out of that darkness into His marvelous light. The key to God's eternal reign is His holiness. God's glory is seen not just in His strength, but in His perfect moral character as well. God will never do anything that's not morally perfect. This guarantees us that we can trust Him. But it does put a demand on us. Our desire to be holy that is dedicated to God and morally clean, that is our only fitting response. Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. It says, When John the Baptist saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming to watch him baptize, he denounced them. He said, You brood of snakes. And he said this to the religious leaders of the day, the cream of the crop, if you will. He said, You brood of snakes. Who warned you to flee God's coming wrath? He tells them, And again, these were were the cream of the crop. These were the religious leaders of that day. He said to them, prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. He asked for proof. Don't claim to be a Christian. Don't claim to be a follower of God. Where is the proof in your life that shows you are? He said, don't just say to each other, we're safe. Because we're descendants of Abraham. Oh, I'm safe because I belong to this religion and I go to this church. Hey, do you know Jesus Christ? There's your only security. It's not where I go to church. You can go to church all your life and still end up in hell. Because that's all you did. You were a church goer. But you didn't know Jesus Christ. And that's what John the Baptist was saying to these religious leaders. Just don't say, hey, you belong to Abraham. He said, that means nothing because I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. He told the Sadducees and the Pharisees, you see these rocks? I can turn them into children of God. Don't, you know, don't tell me about Abraham. John the Baptist gave a call to repentance and baptism and an interchange of mind and heart along with an outward behavior that represented that change and even more importantly, a manner of living that confirmed the change. When we claim that we're a Christian and we believe in Jesus Christ, there has to be a life that supports what I say. My words and my works better match. Acts 26, 20 says, Do works befitting repentance. In other words, prove you have changed by the good things that you do in your life. We must never use unholy ways to reach a holy goal because God says in Leviticus 19.2, you shall be holy. Why? Because the Lord your God is holy. If he's my father and I'm his child, I should be reflecting my father's nature. I must be holy for he is holy. Father, we thank you so much for your love. We thank you so much for your wonderful word, God. And Lord, as the lesson taught us, Lord, we need to be more than just knowledgeable of your word, God. We need to do do more than just hear your word, Father. 
We need to be doers of the word. We must live your word, God. It must be seen in my life that people would know I'm a child of the king. I'm a child of God. My <clears throat> because my life declares, it proclaims loudly that I'm a Christian. That I know Christ intimately. Doesn't mean I'm perfect. It doesn't mean that I don't mess up. Because I do. But that's not what my intent is. My intent is to strive to live a life that's pleasing to God. But there are times when I stumble and I fall. And then I repent. I said, Lord, forgive me. Help me to not do that anymore. And God forgives me if I'm sincere. And he picks me up and he brushes me off and he puts me back on the track. Maybe you're here tonight and you've never received Christ as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you've been just a church goer. And, and thought that going to church is enough to get me into heaven. Or because I, I, I work at the church or I, I give to the church. That God puts that on my tab. But he's not going to ask, what did you do at church? When we stand before God, he's going to ask, what did you do with my son? And there's only two answers you can give. Either I received him or I rejected him. You want to be able to say, I accepted him. And you want Jesus to be there when he says, Father, he's one of mine, she's one of mine. The worship team's going to lead us in a song of worship right now. And if God has spoken to your heart, and you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior,